Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Hi there, excuse me. Do you know where I can find meeting room N252? So what you're gonna do is go up the stairs and it'll be right over here. Hey, welcome to Politico Tech. Today is Wednesday, January 10th. I'm Stephen Overly. Oh my God, I found it. It, is a, it only took an Uber, a Hyperloop, an app, and me asking for directions three times. All right, uh, crash landing and welcome here at CES. Let's see what the rest of the event holds. As you can hear, a bit of a rough start for me at CES. But once I found where I was supposed to be, well, the spectacle did not disappoint. Oh, what even is that? If there's a unifying theme at this year's gathering, it has to be that AI is everywhere, crammed into just about any product you can imagine, claiming to make it smarter, faster, better in some way. I met a South Korean makeup company promising AI that can match your correct foundation. Here you can choose whether you want the foundation itself to be glossy, matte, or like semi-matte. Then a Canadian entrepreneur using it to customize the ergonomics of your desk chair. And it was just archaic, so I thought there had to be a better way. So what I did is I came up with an app. It's an entire display right now, smart toothbrushes. I don't know, I'm looking at all sorts of stuff. And that was just in one showroom. A robotic device that automatically plants young seedlings. In the span of about five minutes. But the enthusiasm for AI-powered everything is not really the full story, because the simmering anxiety about what it means to automate more of our daily lives has been on display too. That includes what AI, and especially generative AI, means for the future of how we work. And in some cases, whether we work at all. A fear driven by the idea that more AI and automation in the workplace means fewer human jobs. Take Walmart. It's a big exhibitor at CES this year, showing off new ways it's using AI to automatically fill your shopping cart and deliver groceries to your home, or to scan your receipt as you exit the store to verify what you've purchased. But Walmart is also the world's largest private employer, with over 2 million employees across its stores and corporate offices. So when CEO Doug McMillan took the stage here Tuesday, he sought to provide some reassurance that Walmart isn't putting technology ahead of people. The underlying principle is that we should use technology to serve people and not the other way around. McMillan called Walmart a people-led, technology-powered company. But what does that mean exactly? That question is how I got connected to Dan Bartlett. He's Walmart's executive vice president of corporate affairs, a job he came to by way of Washington. Dan was a top communications advisor to George W. Bush, working with him from the Texas governor's office to the White House. It's a background that looks better in the rearview mirror. Um, <laughs> politics is, uh, is I know, a, a rough sport these days. But I worked in, when George W. Bush, President George W. Bush, was governor of Texas. I worked in both terms of his tenureship as governor of Texas and then came to Washington and worked um, and led the communications operation ultimately and was counselor to the president from uh, during the Bush presidency. So worked on both presidential campaigns as well as during those time frame and, and left government in the summer of 2007. I asked him, what is the future of work at a Walmart store? 
It is. It's ever changing. Um, and I think past this prologue, when you think about how technology has changed work over the course of modern history, it it always is accrues to the better to the worker because what technology has been able to do is to make repetitive tasks, harder tasks easier. And we're seeing that very much so when you think about a store. Walmart is aiming for 65% of its stores to be served by automation by 2027. What that means in reality is fewer human workers putting their hands on products as they move from distribution centers to shelves. The kind of physically demanding work that Bartlett said often leads to high employee turnover. That is where you're seeing that a lot of that backbreaking type labor in distribution centers, as in warehouses, as well as in the back of stores, is going to increasingly be made easier by technology. And what we're hearing from our own associate is they welcome um, that evolution because at that time, they can see their careers being extended. AI is already creating jobs. And as Bartlett said, some jobs will change rather than disappear. But with any transformational technology, I'm talking the printing press or the internet, some workers ultimately become obsolete. What's incumbent upon Walmart is to provide that transition for them, provide the type of educational opportunities they're going to need, the skills they're going to need, and a range of types of jobs, new jobs that are going to be created in this future type of retail that we're going to be talking about here at CES. That's really exciting. Is there a transition period? Absolutely. And is everybody going to be completely prepared for that transition? I think we'd be kidding ourselves to say that they will be. Having said that, we feel good about the types of offerings from an educational standpoint, from a transition standpoint to the types of jobs that are going to be created in the future. And so when we think about that, let's t- it's hard to take anything more than a, a five-year horizon, let's say three to five years. Sure. And we think our overall employment levels are going to stay about the same. Many companies are making the same pledge as Walmart right now. That AI is going to change the work employees are doing, not simply replace them, and that they have a responsibility to help their workers come into the AI era. But labor leaders are not yet convinced. Unions have had their own presence in Las Vegas this week, both here at CES and their own tech summit elsewhere on the Strip. I spoke with two of the most influential labor voices grappling with this issue. Acting Labor Secretary Julie Sue and AFL-CIO President Liz Schuler. Now, here's a peek behind the podcast curtain. In the middle of my interview with Sue and Schuler, we got booted from our meeting room. That left me, a cabinet secretary, and the head of the country's largest union federation, with microphones in hand, standing in a hallway inside the Venetian Expo Center. Only in Vegas. Thank you for... <laughs> We've not had this is a first. A, yeah, this is a first. So you, uh, you know, never a dull moment at CES. I feel like we should like, do yeah, karaoke at this point right. or something. Yeah. Um, the question I wanted to ask, you know, if we think about past waves of technology, right? Inevitably, some jobs change and some go away. I mean, there's no switchboard operators here at CES, right? Um, I guess for, for, for you, Secretary Sue, I know there's a mandate in Biden's executive order to look at this issue, right, of, of how do you equip workers who are displaced um, because of AI? I mean, how how equipped is the government to address that? Right. So that's a great question, both for the issue we just talked about, which is, you know, there's nothing inevitable about what happens. Right? We've seen 
transition and disruption in the past. And in some situations where you, um, again, you know, prioritize equity, prioritize worker well-being, you can make a transition in a way that actually makes workers safer, that makes jobs better. You know, we saw um, factory jobs go from the turn of the last century from, you know, really dangerous jobs where people were getting injured on a regular basis and working for poverty wages into good jobs, union jobs that help to bring people into the middle class. So I think that we have that kind of uh, a decision point now. But it is true that we have to treat it with the urgency that it demands. And we need a safety net system that helps to make sure that displacement um, isn't harmful, but there actually is a transition plan. And we need to make sure that there's good quality jobs so that workers who are moving from one job to another don't um, decrease their standard of living in that transition. What does an AI safety net look like? Is that job retraining programs? Is that, you know, universal basic income? You know, what are what are the options? I think that is what the, the, the president's executive order is really about us taking a hard look at what already exists, but also what needs to exist and how do we make the right investments? How do we prioritize the, the right things? But as is True in classic President Biden fashion, the well-being of workers is really central to whatever the vision is going to be. And if you have time for one more question for each of you, I appreciate it. Um, you know, uh, uh, Ms. Schuller, I've heard from executives, including here at CES, that AI in many ways is pro-worker. And the main argument being that the tedious jobs, the, the physically demanding jobs, the ones workers don't like to do anyway, some of that can be automated away. Um, I've heard you make similar arguments that that can be benefits of, of AI and automation. So I wonder where sort of you diverge from, from where some of these executives in terms of the benefits here. Well, there's a yes, but to that, because yes, we hope that we can actually automate jobs that are backbreaking, literally, um, that are, you know, stressful and in some cases, um, you know, the jobs that are monotonous, uh, that potentially AI has the ability to make better. Um, but we need to make sure that we're replacing those jobs with jobs that are equally uh, good in pay, good in benefits, um, equitable, giving opportunity to more people as we build right. the path forward. We need to make sure that that future is not a, um, you know, a dystopian future where we're all kind of dumbed down and dehumanized with the technology and, you know, fighting for scraps. Uh, we need to make sure that the productivity that is gained by these technologies is shared broadly, whether it means better jobs and people move on to a pathway that, that makes them, you know, in a higher skilled occupation, or that we work less, that we can actually, like you said, um, you know, have be work, you know, working fewer hours and have um, the benefit of all of those gains shared broadly. Got it. I, I do hear this argument as well, especially from companies, I think, who's sensitive probably to the perception that embracing AI means job loss, saying that they're, they want to retrain workers, right? That they're going to, you know, workers who's, I, I see rolling, rolling your eyes to that. Uh, Michelle runs to training. Right. Well, uh, I wonder um, for you, Secretary Sue, can the Labor Department play a role in some accountability there? If companies sort of make these commitments that they want to retrain workers, find new jobs for them, actually seeing that they follow through. Yes, definitely. I mean, this is a moment in which people are trying to figure out what the right role of government is. And frankly, 
you hear this at CES and you hear this generally, people are looking for some guardrails. They're looking for government to take some action. In our panel, there was a, you know, a, an analogy to industries that are regulated both for, you know, kind of like, you know, the, 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 creation of the right product, but also for trust and for transparency. And so there is definitely a role for government to make sure that um, the guardrails and the the uh, the requirements um, that we put in place um, and that the partnerships that we build with industry, right, who are trying to do the right thing, are really leading us down a path where um, workers get to share in the benefits and the promise of AI. The reason I rolled my eyes about training, I couldn't agree more, Madam Secretary, by the way, um, is, you know, in the last industrial revolution, um, well, I would say when we were looking at um, deindustrialization in the country, where a lot of manufacturing was offshored and outsourced, uh, workers were left behind. And, you know, there was this idea that you were going to, you know, have coal miners become coders. That was the big joke, right? Um, And, you know, that could still happen, and I hope it does. But not everyone's going to be a coder. And in fact, coding is now being displaced by AI. Right. So I think this um, unrealistic expectation that you're going to train your way out of it. Um, training is important. We must invest in it as a country. But at the same time, we need to have a discussion around job quality, as the secretary said, that, you know, that we're taking high wage, high road jobs that for decades have been family sustaining and replacing them with low road, low wage jobs is unacceptable. And that destabilizes not only our economy, but our politics, our society. And when you leave people behind frustrated and disenfranchised, we see what happens January 6th. Right. Right. And so that to me is what we need to be thinking about as a society is how are we going to make sure that this transition we learn from the past, this transition goes more smoothly so that workers can find those paths forward and continue to support their families um, and put food on the table. Well, let me ask you one quick follow-up question there, Michelle, because we've talked about this a little bit on this podcast, that there's concern about AI. It does not yet seem to be an electoral right. issue. Yeah. I am sort of wonder from your vantage point for, for the members you talk to, at, at what point are they thinking how we approach AI, how we address technology and its threat to jobs is... is who you know may determine who I want to be the next president. Absolutely. I think this issue is under the radar, under the surface at the moment, and it's slowly like a drip, 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 where each person that shows up to work and then the next day um, there's a new technology that they didn't expect or didn't know about. Um, it'll build over time, and it's going to be faster and farther. Um, but I think the main concern we have is around um, misinformation, disinformation, how AI and deep fakes and mm-hmm. you know all the rabbit holes people go down on social media will be impacted by AI and how that fundamentally threatens our democracy. And so our working people showing up to the polls, um, you know, are going to need to look to their union, we think, to be a trusted source. Because really, um, you know, we need credible messengers. We need reliable places to find information. And traditionally, people have trusted their union. So we think we can make a difference to break through a lot of the misinformation that's out there um, and help people objectively see, you know, the issues that are really driving this next election. Excellent. Well, thank you so much uh, for an uh, unusual uh, (laughs) podcast taping, but uh, informative nevertheless. Yeah. Yeah. That's all for today's Politico Tech. I'll be at CES the rest of this week. What should I look out for? 
shoot me an email at soverly at politico.com. And for more tech news, subscribe to our newsletters, Digital Future Daily and Morning Tech. Music in today's episode comes from the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Our managing producer is Annie Reese. Our producer is Afra Abdullah. And our editors are Steve Heuser, Daniela Cheslow, and Louisa Savage. I'm Stephen Overly. See you back here tomorrow.